text for this morning's sermon is Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's pray. Father, I ask that these verses we look at this morning, Lord, would put us on the solid rock of Christ that we would lose hope in our own righteousness and seek out Christ. Uh, Father, I ask that you would shed light on the deceiver that tries to get us to work by our own strength, apart from your Spirit, apart from your grace. Uh, Father, if there's anyone in here that's never rested in Christ, Lord, I pray that today might be the day. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if we were sent out to go door-to-door in Aberdeen and ask a question. And it would be a multiple-choice question. It would be, are you good or are you evil? No middle ground, just that question. Are you good or are you evil? I'm guessing that the ones who say I'm evil probably are saved, probably are born again. Although even they might be tempted to not know how to answer the question. Very few unbelievers are going to check the box that they are evil. When uh, Troy and I went to Africa, uh, we knew we were going to be ministering to uh, a group of people who weren't concerned about a lack of righteousness. Uh, Everyone we talked to was a good person if you asked them. They would all admit that, that, yeah, they're good, and God hopefully was going to see that, that Allah would recognize that and receive them one day into heaven. So the task of sharing the gospel, really, before sharing any good news at all, is a process of 
trying to get a person lost. Trying to get a person to see themselves exactly how God would see them. And uh, whenever I share the gospel, uh, the thing that I go to in my mind is I have little hooks that I know I need to talk about. The first hook is God. The main point I want to make is God is good, holy, and righteous. He's perfect. No sin can enter His presence. Everybody says amen at that point, including all those I talk to in Niger. Yes, that's right. God is good. He is holy. He is righteous. So every conversation started out with agreement. In America, you might have to argue for the existence of God, not in Africa. They believe in a holy God and a righteous God, a God to be feared. But the second hook that I know I need to get to is man. I start every conversation with, I got good news and I got bad news. Or, or, or I would start saying, I've come to bring good news, but before I tell you the good news, I need to get to the bad news. So I get done with the Holy God. I say, is that good news or bad news? They say, that's good news. And I say, I, I don't know about that. The problem is, is are you good? They admit they're going to stand before God. But are you good? To which they would answer, yes, I am good. Usually it didn't take more than five or ten minutes to get them to admit that they in fact sin. Uh, but it didn't seem like that big a deal to them. One guy tried to argue with me in front of his friends that he had never lied to anyone or never stolen anything and all of his buddies were just on the ground laughing as he's trying to convince me of his righteousness. So what strategy I use sometimes was taking them to Job. And most of them have never heard this story, but they all seemed amazed by this story. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Job 1. We'll get to Galatians 3 in a minute. Turn to Job chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, blameless, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So right at the beginning, I said there was a man named Job, blameless and upright before God. There was nobody as good as Job. Oh, they were ready to listen about this man. And then I would read them the story of Job. Let's just read the end of it. Uh, verse uh, of, of Job chapter 1. Let's look at verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys 
feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, I didn't really realize it. This is the sovereignty of God. But when you're talking about oxen being cut down, this is culturally relevant in Africa. Uh, while we were there, there was a flood in a village, not where we were at, but it killed about 20 donkeys, which devastated a village. That's like losing 20 tractors. So they can't believe what's happened to Job. While yet, or while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Fire came from heaven, or fell from heaven, and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone am left and have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. This is a difficult day. This is a rich man losing everything in a moment. And then shockingly, here's what we read. So at this point I looked at them and said, I wonder how you're going to respond at the end of this day. Let's go look and see how Job responded. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge, charge God with wrong. And I would ask, is that how you would respond? To which they would all shake their head and say, no. And then I would get a little aggressive and say, are you better than Job? Well, no. They're not as good as Job. And then I would turn to Job 9 and I would say, well, then why was Job afraid? If he's better than you in chapter 9 and verse 28, and this is just the end of his fear and standing before God. Job 9.28, he says, I've become afraid of all my suffering for I know that you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into the pit and my clothes will abhor me. Job says, even though I don't know what my sin is, 
He knows he's a sinner. So much so that his clothes become soiled and abhor him just by wearing them. And here's how he reasons. For he is not a man, as I am a man, that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who may lay his hand on both of us. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread our, and let not dread the dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him. For I am not so in myself. Here's what Job said. I know God has a rod. And if I face Him, even though I'm better than all the people I look at, I know I'm in trouble. I know that if I go talk to God as a mere man, that rod in His hand will beat me down. And so Job says, what hope do I have? And I would say, if that's what Job knew as the best man on earth at the time with more wisdom than you, how foolish to think that you are okay when you face God And then obviously I would go to the third hook. Unbelievably, God does have one to stand between God and man. A God-man who can put His hand on God because He's perfectly holy and touch man because He Himself is man and stand between them. And then I told them about the sacrifice and how He rose from the dead and how He's coming again. But in order for anyone to cling to Jesus, to even care to know about Jesus, you first have to be in a position of not woundedness, but utter despair. If you're going to cling to the Savior with everything you have, so that you say, you have my life, then you have to be utterly desperate and not be looking for a doctor, but looking for someone to save you, to save your life. Just think of how many good people are running around this town good in their own minds and yet have no idea what they are saying. As we come to this text, it's just clear, it's clear as the a bell that there is no hope in trusting in our goodness or our works. What we've already seen in Galatians is that a person is saved not through the law, but by faith in God's grace. Uh, This is the way it's always been. It's the way it was in the Old Testament. 
It's the way it is for this church. You remember? This is a church that heard about the grace of God. Their hearts leapt with joy. And then these traveling Judaizers come in and they say, oh yeah, that's great. You're trusting in Jesus, but you're not getting in unless you have circumcision in the law. Unless you live like a Jew Gentile, you will not get in. That's what we're dealing with. We've already seen Paul just lay over and over again. I feel like I'm coming up, I'm preaching the same sermon every Sunday, but evidently, I think God wants me to. Because we forget what the Gospel is. And it was helpful as I was uh, listening to John MacArthur this week, listening to a sermon that, that he gave. Here's what he said about salvation by faith. He says, first of all, our salvation is always personal and it's never ceremonial. It's always personal. It's never legalistic or ritualistic or ceremonial. We aren't saved by a code. We aren't saved by a set of laws. We aren't saved by a ritual ceremony. You're not saved by going to church and doing a ritual with a church body. There isn't a code. There isn't the list of rules that if you get done, you're saved. Salvation, he says, first of all, is always personal. Second, he said, in addition to that, salvation is also an inward thing as opposed to an outward thing. It's not about any outward action or observance that gets a person saved, but it's about a personal faith that's an inward faith, a faith that comes out of the heart of a man or a woman that saves a person. And he says, thirdly, I think it's important to realize that at the very beginning, our salvation is a spiritual thing and not a material thing. That the Spirit begets Spirit. So, law-keeping, which is according to a code, which is according to outward observance, and according to human flesh, action can never save a person. A person can only be saved by a personal, inward faith that's a spiritual faith created by the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 3, if you remember, verses 1-5, through five, he makes an experiential argument. He said, when did you get saved? Was it when you kept the law or when Christ was presented before you and you believed by faith? When did you get the Spirit? By what power do you do the miracles? He's essentially saying, to every Jew would know this, when the Spirit comes, that's when you know you've received the promise of Abraham and the prophets and the fulfillment of the new covenant. And then he made a scriptural argument in verses 6-9 through nine that culminates in verse 9, so then it is those of faith who are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham wasn't saved when he worked, but when he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. God said, Abraham, you're good, not because he was good, but because he believed. And when he believed, 
God counted goodness to Abraham, righteousness to him. So we pick up in verse 10. So he said it in the positive in, in verse 9. So then it's those of faith who are blessed along with Abraham. Do you want the blessing of Abraham? Believe. Now here's the negative side of that. Look at verse 10, and it's under point one in your notes. Do not enslave yourselves under a curse. So rather than receiving a blessing by faith, Abraham's blessing, it says in verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Have you ever been under a curse before? You know, when I, when I was in Africa, there it, it's folk Islam. <laughs> Rather than fear lacking righteousness, they're more likely to fear a witch putting a curse on them. Fear evil spirits that will not let their crops grow. Living under a curse means that nothing good is going to happen in the future. Imagine if you knew at the beginning of your day that at the end of the day you were going to be tortured for something you deserved. But enjoy your day. 10 o'clock in the morning isn't 10 o'clock at night. Come on, get on living. Your day's going to be miserable because you're living that day all day under the curse of impending judgment. I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but you need to know that your pastor sins and your pastor needs your prayers. But right before, right at the end of December, one of my hunting buddies came down and uh, he forgot to bring his license with him. He had three days. I'd already shot my deer. I was just going to videotape him. He drives from Minnesota down and uh, to make a long story short, he forgot his license in Minnesota. If you forget your license, you have to call the game warden and get another one. We called the game war, all the game wardens. None of them returned our call that day, but we wanted to hunt that night. So, he already paid for the license. His wife sent a picture of it on his phone. It's back at home. So we go sit in Sand Lake, thinking, shoot a deer, you know, We'll, we'll get a tag tomorrow, put it on. There's nothing wrong in our hearts. Well, God is so kind to me. He doesn't let me get away with anything. <laughs> the, long story short, we weren't even supposed to be hunting in Sand Lake. Ryan got the dates wrong. It opened two days. It opened on Monday, not on Saturday. Un, unbeknownst to us. So we're hunting where we're not supposed to be. When we're there on Monday, game warden shows up, or it would have been Monday, game warden shows up. 
uh, we're coming back from our stands. He's at our trucks. And he calls Ryan to his truck, and I'm sitting in the car. And I'm thinking, oh, no. By this time, we figured out we had the dates wrong because uh, we were going to go out there the day before. And this game worn undercover told us, you can't, you can't go, it's not open. <laughs> to which we didn't know. So Ryan comes, gets in the truck, and whispers something to me. I didn't really hear what he said, but I knew the gist of what he was getting at. And I went in the truck, and I told a story that wasn't true. And I got away with it, so it seemed. And we get in the truck, and that 25-minute drive to town was feeling like a curse. When my daughters met me at the door, I felt like such a hypocrite because a curse was on me. The next day, our Ryan goes home next day, I'm in an elder meeting. God is so good to me. And I get a phone call. It's the game warden. He wants to talk some more. Most relieving phone call I've ever got because I got to get into the truck and by the grace of God say, I'm going to tell you everything that's true. Because I can't do this. I'm a pastor. I preach different than this. And he's trying to tell me, oh, it's all right. This is, you're, you're telling me. And it's like, no, <laughs> it's not all right. Living under a curse really stinks, is a nice way to put it. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. All who attempt to please God by being good enough, are under a curse. Job was under a curse as he viewed God with this rod ready to hit him. He said, what worth is it even living? I, I suppose I can't leave you hanging. The game warden was gracious, gave a small fine, and I was able to repent to God, to him, to my friend. So I don't want to derail you for the rest of the sermon wondering what happened. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Remember what we read last week, Romans 4, 5? Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. There is no hope in trying to be good enough. Why? Look at what it goes on to say. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and to do them. The reason why Paul's arguing with this church, why would you turn back to the law is because if you play that game, 
You have to keep the whole thing. He's saying, you're crazy. This is after Christ. After your righteousness has come to you. And Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 27, 26 when he says this. It says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. The way you confirm this law is you do them. If you're going to gain righteousness out of this law, well then you better get it right. The arrogance of denying Jesus and adding the law is off the charts. It's off the charts. Because how do you sum up the law? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Good luck. You want to sign up for that game? You really think you're going to win it and gain entrance? I was trying to think how to illustrate this in... I don't know if this is good or not, but imagine going to Valley Fair and you go to the rip-off section where they have all the games and you pay a lot of money that they're like impossible. Imagine you go to the basketball shoot. But, now just work with me here. As you walk into the park, you hear a roar coming from a group of people over by the basketball shoot. And you're like, I wonder what's going on over there. And you get over there and you realize the rules for this game have changed since I was there last. The rules are, without paying any money, you can shoot two billion shots. If you can make two billion in a row, you get a life, or you get a card that guarantees you life instead of death. And to your surprise, you get there, someone just nailed the two billionth shot in a row. And you're saying, no way, this did not just happen. He really made two billion in a row, and everyone's like, oh, this is amazing. This is the most amazing thing. And then the guy who made the shots comes up to you and slips the eternal life card into your hand and gives it to you of all people. And you're looking at it. And then you're looking at the game. And then you're looking at the rules. Two billion in a row. Go to the trash can. Throw this ticket away and say, give me a ball. Let's go. I can do this. And we all say, that's so stupid. That's what the Galatians are doing. That's what everyone in Aberdeen's doing. That's maybe what you're doing. If you think you're going to earn acceptance before God, you're denying the one who was perfect, who's fulfilled the law, who's offered you eternal life by faith, and you're saying, no, I'm going to take a shot at it. That is the height of arrogance. You know, my 
daughter, Eden, sweet little thing she is, always says this, I do it myself. I do it myself. Even though she can't buckle the car seat, I do it. No, you don't do it. You've been saying that and you haven't done it yet. Daddy do it. And, you know, we live in a culture that says, good for her, look at, look, look at her. She's, she's only two and she's trying it. Parents ought to just let their kids try this stuff. You know, they're gonna, it's a tough world out there. If she doesn't get rid of I do it, she'll go to hell. It's embedded into us. I do it. It's what got Adam and Eve thrown out of the garden. They're going to go around God on their own. They're going to get their own knowledge. And the scary thing is, even for us who are Christians, still have to put to death this little foolish voice that says, I do it. I can handle it. And then John MacArthur was helpful in showing what the law, why the law is not good for sinners in creating righteousness for them. I'll just run through this rapid fire. God's law requires things contrary to your nature. He requires spiritual things and you're spiritually dead. That's not a good, that's not a good game to sign up for. God's law exacts on everybody absolute perfection and performance. God's law refuses to accept good intentions and good effort as any consolation or payment plan. There is no payback for when you screw up in the law. The law is an unrelenting taskmaster and never eases up and never lightens the load. The law shatters the soul like an iron rod shatters a clay pot. Sinners live with guilt, shame, restlessness, sorrow, pain, unfulfillment, dissatisfaction, futility, ignorance, doubt, hopelessness. The soul of a person is shattered in light of living by the law. The law gives a man the severest sentence to eternal punishment in hell. With all of its demands, the law provides no help to the sinner. It provides no restoration or no restitution. You know, when I went to junior high camp out of Camp Judson when I was a kid, you always had to read the camp rules in the cabin. A bunch of junior high kids. Do you realize on that sheet those rules didn't supply any power to not do those things? You couldn't touch that sheet and all of a sudden be zapped with the obedience to follow it. In fact, it was like the opposite effect. As soon as you read them, it's like, oh, I never thought of lighting a fire in here, but let's get this rolling. You know? <laughs> Rules and the law never provide what's needed, the power 
or the integrity to keep it. The law listens to no one's repentance. The law doesn't care how sorry you are about your sin. The law offers no forgiveness. It has no power. It's a list of rules. The law, rather than eliminating sin, stirs it up. The law offers no hope, and it was never meant to offer hope. In fact, we're going to read in a few weeks in Galatians 3.21, there's a sense in which the law is good. It's just not good to give you righteousness. Here's what the law can do. Look at verse 21. Galatians 3.21, the law then, or is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Does the law fit in anywhere in God's plan to save people in Abraham? He says, sure it does. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. And wouldn't it come through Abraham's promise? It would come from the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything. The Scripture is the law. Imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were dead and had held captive to the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Here's what the law does. The law makes a really good argument to say, don't play the game. Go with the Abraham thing. Go with the promise received by faith. The law came to shut your mouth because in the human heart is the idea that I can be good enough and I can do it. And God gives the law, which is a reflection of if a human being was ever going to earn his way here, all right, here's the game. But God's plan never was that you or I would win the game. The plan always was is that Christ would and that you would receive righteousness the same way Abraham did by faith in God's ability to save you, not your ability to save yourself. That's why in verse 11 it says, he just makes it clear as a bell, now it is evident no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. No one, no one wins the game that way, obviously other than Christ. In Christ, even when He plays the game, He takes our sin on Himself and dies under the wrath of God because we didn't win the game. So He says the righteous shall live by faith. Now what He's not saying here, like He was saying earlier, we live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So this is, how am I going to live my life? What's the gasoline of my life is I'm going to live by faith in the God who saved me. He gives me the gift of the Spirit. We're going to find out in the coming chapters 
that the good works you do are not going to be because you're good and you have such great effort. It's going to be because the Spirit, you're walking in step with the Spirit, and you're using the gift that was promised to Abraham, the blessing, the Spirit. It's amazing. You're no longer earning your salvation. You're living out your salvation. You're walking in step with this amazing gift. But what this verse is saying, different than that, is it says the righteous shall live by faith. It means they will get eternal life by faith. That's what he's getting at here. The righteous don't get eternal life by being good enough, but they get eternal life like they've always gotten eternal life by faith. In God. What saves a person is when a person gives up any hope in and of themselves and says, God, you got to save me. And then they realize what was God's plan for salvation. Well, for us, this side of Christ, we get the gospel. The same gospel that's been presented to the Galatian church. And Paul is just literally saying, You guys are crazy. If you're even considering going back to this game, look at what Christ gave you. Look at the grace that He has given you. And in verse 11 there, He's quoting Habakkuk 2.4, Behold, His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within Him, but the righteous shall live by faith. And then it says, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Now, you might be thinking, wait a minute. So in Moses' law, there, it had nothing to do with faith. Didn't God have sacrifices built in here that those who were going to be saved under the law would be saved by faith in what those sacrifices were pointing to? Yes, that's true. This is a redemptive historical argument. Here's what he means. Once Jesus has come, once the Lamb of God has come, once that sacrifice has happened, there's no such thing as going back to the law and trusting in those sacrifices. Your only hope now isn't by faith, you bypass that if you reject Christ because this is where the whole thing was leading. And now Christ has died in your place for your sins. He's resurrected. And if you want to go back and play the law game, there is no grace in there for you. The, the law, he argues, the one who does them shall live by them. And he's saying that is not the game that you want to play. Now I'm going to cut my sermon in half. We'll do the rest of it in two weeks. I'm going to be gone next week. But let me end in Romans 4, starting in verse 18. It's just so good to see this. Now remember, Abram 
His name is the father of many. God eventually gave him the name Abraham, the father of many nations. And he has no kids. It's like the word, talk about a curse. The name you have, everyone's like, oh, how many do you have? Oh, I don't have any. But God promised me a lot. Abraham gets to the point where he's a hundred years old. I think his wife's like 90. And besides, she's barren. Even in her prime, she was barren. But here's what we read in verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. That just means he believed the impossible. As he had been told, so your offspring shall be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is as good as dead. It wasn't dead, but it was as good as dead in producing kids. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. You know why it was counted to him as righteousness? Because he had zero hope in and of his own flesh. (laughs) Okay, God, if this is going to happen, you have to be able to do it. And that's why it was counted to him as righteousness. Remember the Philippian jailer who thought he was going to be dead as the earthquake happened and he thought all that uh, his prisoners were going to escape. In Acts 16.30, he brought them out and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? After he heard, this is what Troy's preaching on next week, after he heard them singing and praising God and praying in the cell, this jailer's like, what must I do to be saved? They could have ran away, but they stayed. They said, don't kill yourself. We're staying. What must I do to be saved? Here's what he said. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Simplest thing in the world. He didn't say follow a law. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. That's how you're saved. By trusting in what God did for you in Christ. Father, thank You. The You know we're helpless. So the only thing we can do to be saved is to admit we can't do anything. And to look to You for repentance and faith even, Lord. God, I pray that we would find comfort in the fact that we can answer, yes, apart from God, I'm evil. But look at my Savior. Lord, I pray that this would humble us. Lord, I pray that this would give us compassion for those of us around us who think they're fine and they don't realize what game they've, they're living Father, I pray that you would use us to be light. In Jesus' name, amen.